Have you ever wondered what if? What if I'd done things differently in my life? What if that one situation had turned out different? What if I'd made a different decision at one time? What? What if? For me, the biggest what if centers around when I was saved. I wonder what would have been differently if I had received Christ earlier. I remember the first time I understood that Jesus had died for me and wanted to save me. I was nine. I was at my Granny Doolin's house. She had a picture on the wall and it was kind of, you've probably seen it. It's a picture that has Jesus knocking on a door outside and kind of in a garden scene. And I was looking at it and I noticed there was no handle on the door. So I asked my Granny Doolin, why was there no handle on the door? And she said that 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 door, it represented the door to our hearts. And that it had to be open from the inside. And that Jesus wouldn't force His way in to save us. But what He would do is He would stand on the outside and He would would knock on the door. And He would wait on us to open the door and invite Him in. And then He would save us. She then shared the gospel with me about Jesus dying and rising again, which I'd heard many times and explained how that was for me. She told me what I kind of how to call upon Jesus and what I needed to believe. And, and I asked her, I said, well, Granny, how will I know when Jesus is knocking on the door of my heart? And at the time, she answered in a way that seemed cryptic and unhelpful because she said, you'll just know. So I thought about it and I went on to bed that night and as I laid in bed in the dark, became aware that something was going on. And I knew from what Granny had told me, Jesus was knocking on the door to my heart. But I had things I wanted to do in life that I was pretty sure my Sunday school teacher had said I shouldn't do as a Christian. And so rather than open the door and let Jesus in... I rolled over on my side and I tried to think other thoughts to make it all go away and to make it all stop. And for the next nine or ten years, every time I would go to church and the preacher would preach, Jesus would once again come and He would knock on my heart's door for me to let Him in. And I would hold tight to the back of the The pews, because, I mean, we were good free will Baptists. We always had an altar call. And I would hold on tight to keep from going forward. I wasn't about to and give in just yet. Time went on, and and about nine years later, we were at the Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church at a revival service that I did not want to go to. But My dad said if I lived in his house, I would live by his rules. And that meant go to revival on Tuesday night. So I went begrudgingly and angrily to revival, intent on not getting anything in the world out of it. And that night, as the preacher preached and Jesus was knocking on my heart's door, it was was as close to being more than I could bear as I've ever experienced with anything like that before from Jesus. And when the altar call came, I almost ran down to the altars. And I knelt down, it was on this side. And I knelt down and I, and I prayed the only biblical prayer I knew for salvation. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And I've often thought, what if that one night at Granny's house, I'd laid in bed and and opened my heart's door to Jesus rather than push it away? What would have been different in my life? Would I have made better decisions as a young person? Would I have done things differently if I had, I mean, if I had been saved from from 9 into 18, would my decisions from 18 on have been different because I would have had that much time with Jesus to kind of help me and to guide me and to, to keep me making the right decisions? I don't know. And we all have probably what ifs. What if, what if the circumstances that were bad in my life hadn't happened? Like what if that one bad thing that happened in my life hadn't happened? What if that job I had wouldn't have went away and I would have got to keep that job? What if I had stayed in college? What if I had never tried drugs? What if? What if? You know, we'll, I don't know that we'll ever know the answer to the what ifs, but we do know the what since. I know the decisions I made in the time I wasn't saved, in the time I was newly saved. And I know the impact that they've had upon my life now. Things I did in that time that I still, I still deal with, whether it's guilt that I feel for actions I took or, or, or strongholds that maybe I built in my mind through other things that I did. And you know as well, you, you may not know the what if that hadn't happened, but you know the long lasting impacts of the things because they did happen. And if we're not careful, what happens is we, we look at all of our what-ifs and we begin to say, because of, of these things and these decisions and, and these circumstances, there's just there's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm unusable by God. Right? It's just, I'm too far gone. I mean, I'm probably saved, but Jesus could never work in my life to accomplish anything for His glory. But I want to give you a different what-if tonight. Today, what if, what if God were greater than our circumstances? What if God were greater than our mistakes? And what if, regardless of the circumstances we've gone through or the mistakes that we've made, what if God was so great that he could still accomplish his purposes for our lives? Well, I want to try to answer that what if today. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and 28 is where we're starting. And that's page 863 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Romans 8 and 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called and whom he called these, he also justified and whom he justified. These also, these he also glorified. Title of the message today is thankful. 
for God's purposes. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, today... All of us have the what ifs in our lives. What if this had been different? What if that had gone different? What if I'd made a different decision? And Lord, there's, there's no going back and undoing what we've done in the past, but there is moving forward in our relationship with you. There is moving forward in faith and confidence in what you have revealed to us about who you are and what you can do through your word. So today, God, help us to to lay aside the what ifs in this time. And Lord, to just listen to, to who you are and what you can do in us and through us and for us. And God, create faith deep down in our hearts and let this form a change in us that we would be different when we left here, God, because we would be confident that we are your people, that you can work in our lives and you can accomplish your purposes no matter what. Oh, my Father, today, renew our hearts, renew our hope, fill us with your spirit, give us the confidence that your word is true regardless of what we see or what we've experienced or what's going on in our lives. Oh, how we need you today to change us. Oh, how we need you today to to fill us with your zeal and your confidence and your faith. Father, today, fill me with your Holy Spirit that I can speak your words in your ways for your glory. Be glorified through all things today, God. And Lord, as we leave here, let us leave here a people who know that we're called, who know that we're saved, and who know that your will can be done in us and through us and for us. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. But you may be seated. There's two foundational truths to what we're looking at today that we have to understand. The first is that God has a, a purpose for us. Right? The last of verse 28, it says that those who are called according to His purpose... And the idea is that there is a, a set purpose that God has for us. It carries with it, a, in fact, a specific plan. Right? So it's not just a general idea that God has a general idea of, of who we are and what we might could be. But God has a specific idea of what we can be in Him and through Him and, and for Him. And we also see in verse 28 that God can accomplish these purposes because he is able to work all things together for our good. And those two truths are pretty foundational. You've got to believe. You've got to believe that God has a purpose for you. Right? Not a purpose just in general, but a specific purpose for you in mind. And then you've got to know, you've got to know that God is big enough to accomplish that purpose. And when we know that God is big enough and we know that God has a purpose, then we can understand that God always, God can always accomplish his purposes for my life. God can always accomplish his purposes. For my life. And this is the the key truth to know today. Because if you can know this, man, you can work the rest of it out. But you've got to know this, you've got to believe this deep in your heart. 
In this passage, it gives us three reasons why God can always accomplish his purposes for our lives. The first is that God is greater than my circumstances. The very first of verse 28, Paul writes, and we know that that all things work together for good. To those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I have circled all things in my Bible because that's a pretty huge thing. All things. And it shouldn't surprise you to know that all things means what it says. It means all things. It carries with it the idea of of everything. Not just all good things work together for good. But all things. All good things and all bad things. All things that bring comfort and all things that bring pain. All things where it seems light and bright and all things when it's dark and dreary. All things when it's easy and all things when it's hard. All things in tribulation and all things in times of peace. All things means all things. And what's great about this is that all things is so big that it not only encompasses the circumstances that come into my life, but it encompasses the decisions that we make. It is so big. All things. It means that even if you and I make bad decisions, and we do sinful things, and we make wrong choices, God is still greater than our circumstances, that He can work all those things Together for our good. Let me, let me show you this in Scripture. This is amazing. So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The Lord had appeared to David, his father. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the site that David had selected. Now, would you believe that one verse is a powerful illustration Of the fact that God can cause all things to work together for good to those who love him. Who are the called according to his purpose. And that all things, it even means our sinful choices. Let me explain. Who here has heard of a guy in the Bible named King David? Raise your hand. David was chosen to be the second king over Israel. God described him as a man after his own heart. And David lived up to that in some ways, but in other ways, David failed somewhat epically. And there are two specific failures of David that are, that are, are the biggest ones. One is in regard to a woman named Bathsheba. David sent his army to battle, should have gone with them, but stayed back. One day, while lounging around in his palace, he looked out a window and he saw a woman bathing on her roof. And he lusted after her and he questioned who she was. And he found out that she was the wife of a man named Uriah the Hittite, who was actually one of his mighty men, a soldier devoted, one of David's special forces soldiers. And David sent for her and David committed adultery with her. Shortly after, Bathsheba sends word to David that she was pregnant. 
seems as though David is going to be caught in a very grievous offense against God and his nation, his soldiers and Uriah. But David, being a guy that can think and plan and scheme, he he sends for Uriah the Hittite to come back and bring him word how the battle is going. David has a plan. His plan is this. Uriah will give him word how the battle goes. And then he will send Uriah home to be with his wife. Months later, she will show all the world that she's pregnant. And it will be, oh, look, what a miraculous thing. Uriah came home and here Bathsheba's pregnant. But on the first night, Uriah wouldn't do it. He slept in the door of the palace. David said, why didn't you go home and be with your wife? And he said, God forbid that the ark of God and the army of Israel should be out in the field and I should go home and lay with my wife. No, sir, it shall not be. David wasn't one to give up quickly, so he got Uriah all liquored up. And he thought, surely, drunk, he'll go back and he'll sleep with his wife. But no, even drunk, Uriah had significant amount of integrity and he slept in the palace again. Well, David has another plan. He writes a note. Dear Joab, who was the general, put Uriah during the hottest part of the battle. And when the battle is really firing up, everybody else pull back and leave Uriah to die. He writes that and he seals it and he hands it to Uriah to deliver to Joab. And he delivers his own death sentence. And, of course, it works just like David plans. And Joab abandons Uriah, who was killed in battle. After an appropriate amount of mourning time, David marries, sends for Bathsheba, and he marries her. No one's the wiser. No one knows what David has done, but the Bible says that God saw that God was displeased. And there were a lot of consequences that came into David's life as a result of that, one of which was the baby died. There were going to be long-term consequences in his family, and all these things happened. Well, that's one. That's, that's the biggest one. That's probably the one we know about the most. Another one happens later towards the end of David's life that's not as well known, but just as significant. David, in, in, a, in a fit of pride, he wants to know how big his nation is. Has it grown since he's been king? How many fighting men does he have? And so he tasks Uriah to go out to, to get the number of all the people of Israel. To take a census, find out how many people there are, how many warriors there are. He kind of wants to gloat at the success of his kingdom. Joab goes and he does as David commands. He brings it back. David sees it and is happy. But God was not happy with what David had done. And he sends a prophet to David to say, you need to choose your own punishment. You have three choices. You can have three years of famine. You can have three days of pestilence. Or you can have... Three, uh, not three months of running from your enemies. David, knowing that God was merciful and men were not, he fell down before the Lord and he said, whatever you deem best, you do. So God sent pestilence and a plague upon the nation because of David's sin. 70,000 people died because of David and his pride. And one day as David is looking out at the people dying, because of him, he sees the angel of the Lord hovering over the land with a sword drawn, about to, I guess, finish what he came to do. And David falls down before the Lord and begs for mercy. And he says, oh, Lord, this is my fault. Please don't punish the people anymore for, for my sin. 
So God tells him to go to where the angel of the Lord is at to get that land and to make a sacrifice in that place. So David goes and he goes up where the angel of the Lord is and he offers to make he offers to buy the land. The man says, no, I won't sell it to you, Lord. I'll I'll give it to you. And David says, God forbid that I should offer anything to the Lord that does not cost me. And David buys the land, which makes it his own at that point. And he offers the sacrifice and he ends the plague. Now, the the guy that David bought the land from was a man named Aruna, the Jebusite. David and Bathsheba went on later to have another child who became king after David, and his name was Solomon. And after David had passed and Solomon was established as king, he built the first temple of the Lord on the land that David had bought from Aruna the Jebusite after he had sinned. So here we have the two biggest sins in David's life, the two biggest failures, the most famous ones. God worked through David's sin to accomplish his purposes of having a great and a glorious temple built. This was a fulfillment of God's purpose for David and a fulfillment of God's purpose for Solomon. And God did it despite the sin that all of this was based in. What God did for David, God can do for you and God can do for me. And none of this means that, that our sin isn't significant. David's sins were grievous and they were costly. He suffered for the things that he had done. But God is greater than the circumstances David brought into his life. God is greater than the decisions that David made. And despite the fact that David made sinful decisions, God was still able to accomplish his purposes for David and for Solomon's life. Some friend, you, you have not gotten through life without making bad decisions. You have not gotten through life without doing things that were sinful and wrong. And what the devil wants us to believe is we've done too much. We, we have gone too far and that God really can't use us. That Sure, maybe God can save us and maybe, maybe He'll forgive us. But, but as far as having a purpose for our life, you've wrecked that. That train is off the track and it ain't ever getting back on there. And what you and I need to know is God is bigger than those circumstances. He is bigger than anything that may come into our lives. So regardless of what circumstances life may throw at us, God can still accomplish His purposes for us. God is even bigger than our decisions and our mistakes. Listen, your decisions haven't kept God from being able to accomplish His purposes for you. Don't believe that. God can always, always, Accomplish His purposes for your life. Because God is greater than your circumstances and your decisions. Secondly, God knows all about me. In verse 29 it says, For whom He foreknew. Foreknew means He knew in advance. 
But it doesn't mean just kind of in a, in a general sense that he sort of knew about us. I, I talked in Sunday school this morning the difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. But we can, if you're a sports fan, you probably know about your favorite quarterback or your favorite team or the different players on them. If you're a if you like music, you may know about your favorite musician. If you read books, you may know about your favorite author. If you like TV shows and movies, you may know about your favorite actor or actress. But odds are you don't actually know them. Regardless of how much you know about them, that doesn't equal knowing them. Foreknew doesn't mean that God knew about us in a general sense. God knew that probably we would be here and that where we might come. But it carries with the idea that God knew us in the most intimate way possible. He knew all about us. Right? Long before we were born, God knew every detail about our lives. Let me show you this in another place. Turn to Psalm 139. Page 476, if you have a pew Bible. Verse 1. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. The idea of Searched and known is, again, a very intimate knowledge. A very intimate knowledge about us. Who we are. But not just, again, not just in a general sense. Notice the specifics. Verse 2. You have known my sitting down and my rising up. God knows the actions that we take. He knows everything that we do. You understand my thoughts Afar off. Right? That means God knows the thoughts that we think. He is well aware of every, every thought that we think, whether we act on it or whether we don't. He, he knows every thought that runs through our minds. You comprehend my path. Right? And he, he understands why we do what we do. He is acquainted with our ways. Verse 4. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. I mean, God, he he knows he knows us so intimately that he knows the words that we speak before we speak them. He knows what words we want to say, but don't say. He knows all the things you didn't say to your in-laws over the holidays this week. He knows what you've wanted to post on Facebook, but haven't he? He knows he knows all of that. That's how intimately he knows us. There is not any part of our life that is unknown. But he doesn't just know it as it happens. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my sustenance being yet unformed. Right. So God knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb. He was aware that all of that was going on. And notice this. And in your book... They all were written. All what? The days fashioned for me, when as yet none of them, there were none of them. Do you realize, so when it talks about God knowing our sitting down and our rising up, our thoughts and our speech and our actions and everything, He knew all of that long before we were born. 
There has never been a time where God did not know who you were or what you were going to do. There has never been a time where God did not know the words you would say or the thoughts you would think or the actions you would take. There has never been a time where God has not known all that there is to know about you and about me. And so God, knowing all of this, look at what he goes on to say he does. How precious also are your thoughts to me. Now, I just want to stop here. Knowing who we are, what we're really like. Knowing the thoughts that we don't express, who we are in private, who we are in public, God has thoughts, and those thoughts toward us are precious thoughts. And really, the idea of thoughts is is plans. God foreknew us, all about us, and He took into consideration where we would be born, who our parents would be. He took into consideration the, the things life would throw at us and the decisions that we would make. He took into consideration everything that would ever come into our lives, and He formed a plan for our lives around that. And they are precious plans. How great is the sum of them. As Jeremiah said, there are thoughts of hope, thoughts of peace. God's plans for us are good plans. And He planned these plans knowing Everything there is to know about us. Go ahead and turn back to Romans. Now, the idea that God knew all that there was to know about us is the idea of omniscience. Scripture frequently speaks about the fact that God knows everything about everything. He knew the end from the beginning. And we often, I mean, the idea of God knowing everything is probably not a, a new information. We, we tend to know that God knows he knew when Jesus would come and that Adam and Eve would sin and he knows the events of Revelation, when they're going to come to pass. He knows all of that. But what we often fail to do is we fail to apply the omniscience of God to us personally. God knew the election, but God knew how we were going to vote. God knows what next year holds, but he knows what we're going to do as well. Right? It's not just a general God knows stuff, but God knows intimate details of your life and mine. And he has always known that there has never been a time where God did not know that. And so because God foreknew us, he predestined. The idea is he, he preplanned something for our lives. Knowing all about us, God made the perfect plan for our lives. And this plan, it, it included all things. Maybe because you think about it, making all things work together for our good. That's a huge promise, isn't it? I mean, it would be a huge promise if it was all good things, but all bad things. And that would be huge. But it's also all things that, that I do, all the decisions I've made. God, that was all incorporated in God's plans. How can God make a promise like that? I mean, that is a... I mean, that is an all-inclusive, unconditional, all-things promise. How can anyone make that kind of a promise? Because God knew everything about everything that would ever happen in our lives. God knew everything about everything that we would do in our lives. And because God has this intimate omniscience with our lives, He is able to make plans specific for you, and plans that are specific for me.
And because God knows all things, then God can always accomplish His purposes for your life and for mine. He is greater than our circumstances. He knows all about us. And then the final truth that we have to know is that God plans for me to be like Jesus. This is the key that I want us to understand. God has lots of purposes, lots of plans, but there's one that is primary above all. And what we tend to do is we, we miss this point. Because we look at this and we say that God works all things together for, for good. Well, the way I define good would probably be that everything would work together for my financial prosperity. Everything would work together for my physical health. Everything would work together for my comfort. Everything would work together in ways that make perfect sense to me. Everything would work together in ways that I would look at that and I would say, and that was very good. The problem with that is God doesn't think like I do. And God doesn't think like you do. And something that's difficult for us to understand is that God isn't as concerned about our financial prosperity as we are. And God isn't as concerned about our our comfort as we are. And God isn't as concerned about even our physical health as we are. There are two things that God is primarily concerned with. Our salvation and our sanctification. He is concerned that we know Jesus. And He is concerned that we become like Jesus. Everything else is kind of secondary to those two things. So the good, when God says, I cause all things to work together for good, in verse 29, He tells us what this good is. For whom He foreknew, He predestined. He preplanned to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. See, God's ultimate purpose for you and for me, it's not that we would be prosperous. It's not that we would be healthy. It's not that we would be even happy as the world might define it. His ultimate plan is that we would be saved by Jesus and then we would be like Jesus. And so all of God's purposes, whether it's prosperity or whether it's not, all of that is to work together to help us be like Jesus. That is the the primary concern that God has for your life and for mine. That is the number one thing that God is interested in in each one of our lives. He knew all about us. He made a plan. And the primary end of this plan is that we would be like Jesus. And knowing that plan, he began to deal with us. Verse 30, it says that he, he called us. Right? That's, he, he knocked on our heart's door. And he waited on us to open the door. For there was a time when None of us knew the Lord. We did not know Jesus. We were not like Jesus. We weren't even overly concerned with Jesus. But God reached out to us to draw us to Himself. 
And it's important to notice that he he called us because salvation, it always begins with God. The gospel was God's idea. And that day that you opened the door of your heart to let Jesus in, you and you opened the door in response to him seeking you and him knocking on your door. No one ever of their own initiative just up and goes to Jesus for salvation. We always go to Jesus in response to Jesus first coming to us. So God had a plan that we would be like Jesus. And so he he called to us and he called us to himself. And in that moment, when we knew that Jesus was knocking, he was calling. We had a decision to make. Many of you like me, you you didn't answer right away. You, you didn't open the door right away. You just held back and you resisted and you plugged your ears and you hoped it would go away. But Jesus, he was persistent and he just kept knocking. And so one day you opened that door. And Jesus came in. And when Jesus came in, you were justified. The idea of justified, basically it's the place where God declares a believing sinner to be not guilty. In that moment, your sins were forgiven. In that moment, there was no more condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. In that moment, you became a, a new creature, a new creation that was destined to become like Jesus. And those he justified, he, he glorified. And glorified is kind of a twofold thing. One hand, it talks about what God is going to do in our lives right now. See, because the moment Jesus walked in, we didn't become like Jesus in that minute. In that instant, we weren't like Jesus. Chances are, you're not like Jesus today in every way that you should be. Neither am I. But in that day that Jesus walked in, we started a process where we began to become like Jesus. As Jesus lives within us, He begins to say... You really think you should be doing that? Why don't you start doing this instead? Hey, you need to read your Bible. You need to pray. Hey, talk to them about me. No, don't say that about them. Don't gossip. Don't lie. Do this. Don't do that. He began this process of helping us become like him. Sweeping the house, you could picture it. And while there's a lot of work to be done, and, and I was in here this morning praying, and I was just thinking about all the, the stuff, just the last few days, bad attitudes i had had, assumptions I had made. And just, man, I am so not like Jesus all the time. And as much work as there is to be done, the day will come where the house is clean. The day will come where we are like Jesus. That's the day that he will take us to be with him. And in that moment, 1 John 3 says, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. It's God's plan for Jesus to come in and to begin to sweep the house, to clean the rooms until he takes us to be with him and everything is suddenly immaculate and we are just perfect as we should be. This is God's ultimate purpose for me. And this is God's ultimate purpose for you. And so God will work through all things 
would happen. And all things that we do to help bring this about in our lives. He, he wants us to be glorified. He wants us to be with Him. In Ezekiel, God says a couple of different times that He has no, no, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That they would turn to Him. They would be saved. So today, God calls. And He calls. And He knocks on the door. And He waits for us to open. And if you're here today and you've never opened the door, then, then understand, Jesus is here. He is at work. He is working through His Word and through the Spirit right now, knocking on your heart's door. And, and I can't tell you how it feels. I can only tell you what my granny told me. You'll know when it's Jesus. And your need is to open the door. And to let Him in. To let Him start the process. And if you're a believer, Jesus is in you. And He's cleaning. But what we do sometimes... I, I, Kelly's not here so I can tell a story. And if I want her to know I told it, I'll tell her when I get home. We often have different ideas about where things should go. I put something here and she thinks it needs to go over there. So she puts it over there. And it's, it's mine. It's not even her stuff. It's my stuff. So what do I do? I go behind her and I get it. And I bring it back over here. And then she comes behind me and she gets it. And she says, no, I think it goes better over here. So we play this game a lot in our house and in our lives. I think sometimes we do that with Jesus. Jesus cleans this up over here and says, let's move this over here. And we're like, mm, Jesus, I really like it better over here. And today, if Jesus is in you, he's at work in you. Let me ask you, are you rearranging what he's doing? Are you undoing what he's arranging in your life? Are you messing up what he's cleaning up? Are you resisting? Is there something in your life? And you know, you know that right now, Jesus is saying, stop this, start this. Apologize here. Do this there. Make this change there. You, you know that Jesus is cleaning in an area of your life, but you've been resisting. Then believer in Jesus Christ, stop. And let him clean what needs to be cleaned. And let Him change what needs to be changed. Cooperate with Him so that you can experience God's purposes in your life. Let Him make you like Him. It may be hard and it may be awkward at times. But in the end, it's always, it's always better. So today... What do you need to do? How do you need to cooperate with God's purposes for your life? Do you need to open the door for the first time and let Jesus come in? Do you need to move something back to where Jesus put it? Do you need to stop pushing back against Him and, and surrender to the change He wants to make? Unless you are just like Jesus, there's something He wants to clean in your life today. There's a change He wants to make in your life right now.
The only question is, are you going to work with him? Or are you going to work against him? He can. He can accomplish his purposes for you. No matter where you've been, what you've done, or what you've experienced. But he'll not force you. He'll point out what's best. He'll knock at the door. And then he'll let you either cooperate or resist. I'll close with a story from Scripture. A man came to Jesus one day and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, You know the law. Honor your father and your mother and these things. And the guy says, I've, I've done all of those since I was a child. Mark's gospel says Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, there's one thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me and I will give you treasures in heaven. And the guy was very sad because he had great wealth. And he walked away. Do you know what Jesus did when the guy walked away? He let him. He didn't renegotiate. He didn't say sell half your stuff. He let the guy walk away. Jesus is knocking to come in today. He won't kick the door in. He'll let you keep it closed. And you'll miss out on everything He wanted to do in you and through you and for you. He'll let you. Jesus is in you and cleaning and you keep putting it back. He'll let you. And you'll miss all that he wants to do in you and through you and for you. His plans for us are precious. They are for our good. And they are always what's best. And when we resist, he lets us. But we are the ones who miss out. We miss out on what He could do in us and through us and for us. What do you need to do today?